when you go through a breakdown, it's almost like being in a car that you've been driving for 20-something years old, but now all of a sudden you're in the passenger seat and you've got no control over where that car's going. It's a pretty horrible experience. My name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives. And we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations, and I hope better conversations with attempt survivors. I am going to continue trying. Now we are talking about suicide. This may not be a good fit for everyone. Please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there's so much to learn. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. Hello at suicidenoted.com. Reach out. You can also reach out via Facebook or Twitter. As we wind down this year, I want to thank everybody who has been on the show. I want to thank every survivor who has come on and shared their story with me and with our listeners on Suicide Noted. And of course, I want to thank all of our listeners around the world. There are more and more people hearing these stories of survival. So thank you so much for all of your support. Today, I am talking with Simon. Simon lives in Australia, and he is a suicide attempt Survivor. Hello, Simon. How's it going? Oh, good. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm hanging in as best I can, you know? That's good. Uh, I I do want to thank you for uh, just listening and reaching out. I appreciate it. Um, You never know who who hears it. And because podcasts are what they are, you know, people from all over can hear it. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's weird. It's had a strange effect on me. Uh, I'll be honest, I was walking along, I was just having a crap day and I buzzed in suicide to Spotify and that's how I found it. I listened to the the two other Aussie fellas that you've interviewed first and then yeah I was hooked and I went back to episode one and just worked my way through. I was trying to tell my wife about it. I can't describe how it's helped me but it's definitely helped. It's a weird a weird one but um no it's definitely helped. The stuff people have done that's helpful I've learned a lot from that but it's also nice when people say almost word for word stuff you've thought as well and you think maybe i'm not as nuts as people thought i was sort of thing if you get what i mean i never want to assume i get what anyone means for sure right but uh I, what you said definitely makes sense to me yeah. yeah i've had my stuff in my life where i thought i was crazy or and i'm using that colloquially and also literally uh and yeah you hear it and you're like okay there's one or maybe more than one that's something about that feels feels yeah decent. i'm always curious what compels people to reach out and yep. what puts you in a place where you feel comfortable enough to talk about something that a lot of people wouldn't talk about. So that's what I'm curious about. Yeah, so the main one for me is when I had my breakdown and obviously my suicide attempt, there's probably a core group of three or four people that really, really helped me. And I could never say thanks appropriately to those people. There's nothing I could do to repay what they did for me. 
but this is my sort of way of paying it forward, I guess, and and helping the next wave of people that might need help. Mm. Uh, and also probably enough time has gone by where I've been able to deal with a lot of my problems and, and get to a level where I'm comfortable enough to talk about it, mainly just to help other people, really. Are you comfortable going back, however or wherever the story starts for you, about the suicide? Is there one attempt or more than one attempt? Just the one. One was enough. Um, yeah, I'm sure it was. But that was the other reason I wanted to maybe chat to you was I noticed a lot of your guests probably planned for a long time and I didn't. Mine was more, I think, like a build-up of pressure, I guess. So, yeah, to give you a better idea, so my birth dad, if you want to call him that, I wouldn't use that word to describe him, walked out when mum was pregnant with me and I've got two older brothers, uh, five and six years older. And so she met a new fella. He was very, I don't know the appropriate way to describe it, but he was he was very mental and psychologically abusive. And he was very good at making you feel pretty worthless and, and all that sort of thing. And I suppose people listening would say, well, why, why didn't she just leave him and, and find someone else? And until you've been in that situation, like he made you feel like that was just normal and... Yeah. You know, I'd go to school and think that every other kid's, you know, dad was treating them that way and that sort of thing. And I just thought, you know, it was normal for kids to come home and be like, if he was at work and I saw his car wasn't there, like I was like happy as, as could be. Mm. And I thought that was normal. There's probably two or three occasions of like physical abuse, but mainly mental sort of really just beating you down and making you feel like, yeah, just making you feel like shit sort of thing. And so he was around for about eight years and then he, you know, mum built up the courage to leave him. And so it was just mum and my two brothers and I. And then mum met a new fellow who's now her husband and he's he's amazing. He treats her like she should have been treated all along and, and he's really good with me and yeah, I couldn't speak more highly of him. And so things were really good um, for the first time in pretty much my life, you know, I was, I was genuinely happy and comfortable and living the life, you know, sort of early teenager should. And then 2003 rolled around and my older brother, who was deployed in the army at the time, took his own life. Well, as you can imagine, I know you lost your friend. Um, your world just drops out from beneath you when you get told that. And he he took his own life. And then uh, a little under 18 months later, our grandfather passed away, who, I mean, you know, people lose grandparents and it's sad, um, but he was pretty much our surrogate dad. So to lose your big brother, who was my hero, I guess, mm-hmm. and then to lose your surrogate sort of dad, you know, inside 18 months was pretty tough. And how old were you at the time, Simon? So I was about 14, 15 when this all happened. I mean, there's no uh, there's no good age for that, obviously, but that sounds particularly tough. It was hard on a couple of levels because as I got older, I sort of grasped, you know, what suicide was and, and all that sort of thing. And, and it sort of, you almost went through it again and again because, yeah, you, you matured a bit and came to understand, you know, what it was. And so, yeah, so Paul, my older brother, took his own life and then my grandpa died and and I immediately assumed that I had to be the strong one 
and I had to be, you know, that didn't show any emotion and didn't show any sadness and was there for everyone. And upon reflection, I would have had no idea how to do any of those things, but I thought that that's just what I had to do. So I probably bottled it all up and and just didn't deal with it. That went on for about four or five years where I was just sad all the time. Missed my brother, but any time my family was around, I'd sort of perk back up and smile and, and make sure they were okay. And then as soon as they weren't looking, you know, I'd bottom out again. Lots of alcohol abuse, lots of self-harm, unfortunately. That goes on for about four or five years. Um, in my early 20s by this stage, I was really starting to struggle with uh, nightmares about my brother. So every night I would have a nightmare where I would actually see my brother take his own life and I couldn't stop it. So again, not to get too graphic, but my brother actually hung himself and I'd have nightmares of trying to lift him up, but he was too heavy, trying to get to him, but he was too far away. And then on the really bad nights, I'd have a continuation of that nightmare where my family would like blame me and say that it was my fault and that sort of thing, which is all not real, obviously. But when you have that every night, you start to fear to go to sleep. And then when you do go to sleep, it's not fun and you wake up and you've got to... Anyway, so, so yeah, life was pretty rough and I met a girl and for whatever reason, all the nightmares went away. I was happy. I was genuinely happy, so I wasn't faking it. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't. Everything was really good for the first time in a long time. Roughly six months into the relationship, she decided to break up with me, which in hindsight, looking back, we had no business being together. We didn't have many mutual interests, but she took away all the bad stuff that was happening to me. So um, I didn't take the breakup very well at all. I did. A lot of things that are pretty embarrassing now and made some pretty desperate attempts to get her back. This went on for about two or three weeks of no sleep, of, you know, calling, texting, all the stupid stuff that guys do when their brain implodes. That culminated in a day where I was at my mum's house. I was hysterical. She was exhausted. Like she, We've always had a good relationship, but I went back and in years later and said to her, look, I'm so sorry for what I put you through and all that sort of stuff. And we, there was this one day where I was, like, screaming at my mum to, like, help me get this girl back because, mm. and again, it's pretty embarrassing, but um, mum was exhausted. She left me alone in her room for, and I started mentioning, you know, I don't want to be here anymore and all this sort of stuff. She left me in her room and the nightmares that I told you about had merged into the day. So by this stage, I was hearing voices and they were telling me, you know, you're useless, you're worthless, it's your fault, your brother's dead, no one wants you here. I don't know. The voices, when people say, you know, you hear voices and stuff like that, mine, I'm sure everyone's a different, but mine was like your stereotypical demonic voice that you'd hear from a, from a horror movie. Like think your most cliche horror movie voice and that was what I heard. Simon, those cliches probably come from somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, I, I have a question about that, if I may ask. When you when you say voices, yeah, you don't. Are you suggesting? So for me, I don't think I've ever had that. I think I've had stuff where I'm like bashing myself and I'm thinking about things. You hearing yeah. actual voices, just to be clear. Yeah, this was next level, and I, I can relate yeah. to what same feelings you've had. It's quite strange because it was a voice, and it almost had like a backing track, if you mm. could call. It. 
like radio static. These voices were so loud and this noise was so loud. It was like if you put your head to a speaker, you know, old school boombox or whatever, and you had that on full ball, I felt like that was in my ears all day, every day. That is seriously scary. But for everyone around me, because I bottled up my feelings and hadn't told anyone how I was feeling, they thought, you know, what's this bloke's problem? Like he's, he's been with this girl not even six months. She's broken up with him and he's flipping out. And that's more, that, that's on me. Like I should have told more people around me, this is how I'm feeling. So I learned that lesson for later on. But anyway, so my attempt culminated in, and I always I always told myself, however bad it gets, I'll never I'll never do myself in because I've seen firsthand the wreckage that causes. Like it just it takes years off people's lives trying to deal with what's left, you know. And I couldn't do that to my other brother, my middle brother. I couldn't do that to him, you know, leave him be one of three brothers left and do it to my mum to lose, you know, one son's bad enough, but to lose two. So I always said, it doesn't matter how bad it gets, I won't check out. And this day, like I said, the voices were just going flat out. And I was sitting on my bed and I looked into the wardrobe in the bedroom and there was a dressing gown with a cord as soon as I looked at that dressing gown, the strangest thing happened. It went dead quiet. If you can picture the most beautiful rainforest that you're sitting in the middle of and it's peaceful and it's, mm. there's no noise, I, that was like that. All the noise just stopped like that. And I felt so calm, like so calm. The only thing I can relate it to, if you've ever had a general anaesthetic, when they put the anaesthetic in, yeah. That seconds before you go to sleep, mm-hmm. it felt like that. Yeah. And I had no fear, no anything. So walked over to this dressing gown, pulled the cord out, tied a noose very quickly, um, which was probably the only thing that saved me because I knew mum was going to come and check on me. So by that stage, she was really worried about me. She was checking on me every sort of five minutes. Tied a noose very quickly, put it around my neck, attached it to the wardrobe and just dropped at the knees. I'm not sure how long after that, but mum came in and found me. I'd completely given up on that stage and I'm not sure how she did it, but she talked me into going to hospital and that would have been the worst drive for her. We live in the country, so hospital is an hour away. So she had a hysterical son in the car who's just attempted suicide and she had to take me to hospital. Yeah, so we got to the hospital. It was not a good experience for me. This is probably the only part of the podcast that I've thought twice about talking about because getting help and getting treatment is so important. And I don't want anyone out there listening to this thinking that fellow from Australia said that his treatment was bad, so I'm not going to get treatment. I got there and I'm a, um, or I was a personal trainer for about 15 years. The town that I worked in only had about 30,000 people. So when you're a personal trainer in a town that small, you get to know a lot of people really fast. You know, I was regularly taking classes of 30, 40 people, you know, so you're in front of a lot of people. And anyway, we get to this, get to the hospital, get to the psychiatric unit, and the psychiatrist in charge of me, I'd written a gym program for less than a month beforehand. And two of the nurses there were members of the gym that I worked at. As soon as I saw that, I just shut down and I just, 
it wouldn't have mattered how good those people were or how much they wanted to help. I wasn't going to receive treatment from them. I was just, I was in a panic. I just wanted to get out of there. I didn't want to stay there. I was hurling all sorts of abuse at my mum, at the staff. Like it was not, I'm not proud of the way I acted. And it was a pretty horrible experience to the point where I was only there for a night. The next day, convinced them to let me leave. That was my attempt in a nutshell, sort of the 24 hours surrounding it. They let you go. I'm not sure how I talked them into it because I wasn't in a good place. But I think, unfortunately, probably from my job and, and from years of trying to hide it, I was pretty good at telling people what they wanted to hear. And at that stage, I didn't want to get treatment. I just wanted to be out of there. I'd done the exact thing that I always said I wouldn't do. And when you go through a breakdown, it's almost like being in a car that you've been driving for 20-something years old. But now all of a sudden you're in the passenger seat and you've got no control over where that car's going. It's a pretty horrible experience, to be honest. What was it? I, I'm just curious, particularly like that, I don't know, week or month or even year after, like was that, what was that like? So the two, two to three years after it were pretty horrible, to be honest, because I no longer felt the need to cover up from my family that I was unwell. I really spiralled, so I started drinking heavily, self-harming. Not only that, but I became very spiteful and very bitter, I think. I felt like, you know, I'd been trying so hard to be on this earth against my will. Like, for the longest time before my attempt, I wanted, like, an accident to get me or I wanted an illness to get me. I just wanted to be out, but I didn't want my family to go through another suicide. I'd struggled for so long for other people. Like my mum is amazing. She's the most beautiful woman on earth, I, I think, next to my wife and, and my daughter. I just thought I'm only here for these people and they, all they do is they put me in hospital. I just thought, you know, stuff it. If I've got to be here, I'm just going to drink and I'm going to – and I treated people like shit. Pretty much whatever I could do to make myself – not feel sad and not hear the voices anymore, I did. And I, I had no regard for other people, which burnt a lot of bridges. And in a small town, that's not a good thing to do. Right. Well, what do they say? Uh, I don't know if this is, a bit again, cliche, but damage people, damage people, right? Yeah, I was in a really bad place for a lot of years. And then the weirdest thing happened, I was actually away with a boys trip. We went away for the weekend and lots of drinking, lots of you know, partying and that sort of stuff. And I was scrolling through Facebook and a dog popped up on Facebook that was looking for a home. It was like a punch in the face. I was like, I just looked at this dog and I was like, wow, like I want to adopt that dog. Messaged the owner and said, I'll come, you know, as soon as we get home from the weekend, I'll come and visit. And yeah, I adopted her and, and that was probably the turning point for me. Really? Um, yeah. What kind of dog? Um, she's a Siberian Husky, so she's got the most beautiful blue eyes. She was, I think, 14 months old when I adopted her, and she's eight years old now. Yeah, so I adopted her and just started walking every day with her, and, and that wasn't the cure, but it it definitely helped, and it sort of got the ball rolling as far as recovery goes. 
so yeah so I, I got her and, and started getting a bit better and I went back and made contact with people that I sort of deemed that I might have upset during my dark years I think you cut out very briefly you said that most of the people you reached out to were, were good but a few told you to what piss off yeah okay. uh, a few people were yeah I think it takes a lot of strength to reach out knowing that some people might say bye-bye yeah it just sounds like everything you went through and all of the, I don't, and you'll tell me if I'm off here, playing happy when you're not happy. It sounds like several years of just, like you said, not just being unhappy. That's probably putting it lightly. It's got to be so incredibly tiring. Yeah. And that was, I think, probably what got me in the end. You know, you're just carrying this weight around. It wasn't just that. It was in my head. And again, for someone that's never been mentally ill, they'll listen to this and be like, that makes no sense. But for me, I blamed myself for my brother taking his own life, which the logical me knows that that makes no sense at all. That blame turned into a really, really aggressive self-hatred, like a really violent, because I used to self-harm because those voices that I told you about, it would stop them for an hour. And then it would stop them for half an hour and then it would stop them for 10 minutes and then it would stop them for a minute. And then I'd have to upgrade my self-harm to to make those voices go away. And then that turned into my suicidal ideation was the most violent ways of suicide I could think of. How are you working while you're dealing with those voices? I just got good at faking it. And then the hardest part, because I was a personal trainer, you're not only working, but you've got to be up and about. You know, you've got to motivate people and you've got to, you can't show signs of of any of what I'm telling you now. So Right. And it, it was, it got really bad. I know I only wanted to kill myself, but I wanted to suffer as much as I could because in my view, everything bad that had happened to my family was my fault. For the longest time, I used to, fantasize about covering myself in petrol and setting myself on fire because I thought that was the most painful way that I could that I could do it. Um, pretty painful way. So I was I was about as far off the deep end as someone gets. So the main reason for me being on the podcast is you know if, if there is someone listening that is to the extent that I was at, maybe if they hear me and now know where I'm at, like I'm at a really good place in life they might think maybe i can hang on for one more day and then that day might turn into a week and then so on so absolutely there are definitely people listening yeah so we don't necessarily know occasionally people reach out but typically they'll never reach out but you don't know did you ever get a diagnosis when my breakdown happened pretty high grade depression that i was diagnosed with Mm-hmm. And I agree with that to an extent, but I always felt like something was missing. My wife is amazing. So we've been together for about six years, married for about two. She's beautiful on a lot of levels, but one of the main ones is that she's really understanding when it comes to my mental health. But like I've got depression, but there's, I feel like there's something extra. We haven't quite put all the pieces together. So with a lot of encouragement from her and a lot of support from her, we went and got a bit more help and uh, it turns out i've got um bipolar which makes a lot of sense uh, Mm -hmm. looking back so when you talk to the doctors did that account for the voices i'm wondering no they put that down to sleep deprivation predominantly 
when I was having the nightmares that I was telling you about, I did not want to go to sleep. Like, I'd, right. I'd anything to stay away. I have no doubt that I was severely mentally ill at the time, so it could have been for another reason. Um, but I haven't had any trouble with those for a long time. So did they medi- Did you get medication? I'm not on medication currently because I feel okay. And I don't enjoy the sedative effect of medication. I don't enjoy like the fogginess. Um, yeah. So it's always been my goal to work towards being able to cope without medication. I think to all the listeners out there, if you need medication, go for it. Yeah. My biggest problem with treatment and medication was my pride and I, I wouldn't take help and, and all that sort of stuff. I'm, just take the help. It gives you a much better quality of life. So, um, yeah, so certainly around my attempt and for a couple of years thereafter, I was on a few different types of medication and it's certainly, I very much believe there's a place for it. I just, like I said, my goal was to always to work towards not being on them eventually and it took a lot of work, like a lot yeah. of work. But, yeah, I'm there now. So, Other than your dog... What ha- what else helped? Sounds like you've gotten better and better and better. There were three things that I, I think really helped other than sort of support from family and friends and, and that sort of thing. Um, but the main one for me was letting go of, and I've heard a lot of people on your podcast, something's happened to them which has sort of started their mental illness. You know, they've been abused or they've been judged because they're gay or they've, or whatever. For me, it was having you know, that step-parent that was pure evil. And for the longest time, I felt like you either had to forgive or not forgive. And, and I found that there was a third option and, and it was to let it go. So I certainly still very much blame a lot of what happened to my brother and to me and, and that sort of thing on our stepdad. But I was able to let it go. And the strangest thing happened when I did was that I found a lot of the hatred that I had for myself disappeared. Mm. Once that disappeared, you know, the healing process, I got so much more out of therapy. I got so much more out of different things that people would suggest that never used to work that now worked for me, like mindfulness and, and all that sort of stuff. So wow. as soon as I let go of that sort of anger, but that was a tricky, and I'm not entirely sure how I got to that point. I was going to ask that, Simon, because it sounds like, yeah, okay, I let it go. What does that look like, you know? Yeah, I think as you get older, you get a bit more mature. I've got no doubt that my wife probably helped a lot. And I think, too, there needed to be a resolution. I was either going to forgive them, which I couldn't bring myself to do. I was going to go and beat the shit out of them, which my mum pleaded with me not to do. And I was really stuck with those two options for the longest time and then yeah I just came to a point one day where I was like you know what I can let this go I can just Mm. not let it ruin any more days for me and I think to taking responsibility for your mental illness is the next big step like I think a lot of us get hung up on what's fair and me losing my brother wasn't fair and and you get so hung up on that and you get really bitter and twisted about it and if you're able to let that go, again, the healing process, I think, speeds up by tenfold. Mm. Really sort of saying, right, I've got a problem. I need to do something about it. Yeah, it's not fair that I'm here in the first place, but I need to fix it. That was probably my turning point. And how'd you meet your wife, if I may ask? 
um, you know, the dog that I told you about before. Oh, wow. This is a magical moment with the dog, yeah. man. I met her at the gym, actually, and I said, I'm walking my dog after the gym. Do you want to come? And she came along. and That shit uh, worked? Yeah, yeah. God damn, I got to steal that. I'm of the theory that you just got to ask. Like, and if you get that's ninety percent of it, Simon. Yeah. You just gotta ask, right? Yeah, yeah that's so, like you're. You just nailed it. Just ask. Yeah. So great. yeah, she came for a walk with with the dog, and yeah, we you know started yeah. up. Well, it sounds like that she's. It's been a good thing. Yeah, she's amazing, and now you know we've got a little do- a little daughter, another one in Feb, which is pretty exciting. So yeah, yeah. congratulations. So, What's it like to be a father? It's the best. It's actually the best. When I train people, they come in and they talk about their kids and they'll be like, oh, like, and I mean, yeah, there's sleepless nights and stuff and pooey nappies and all that, but like, they just do the littlest things and it just lights you up. She's amazing. So I really just try and focus on the here and the now. Um, A lot of people tell me that they grow up so fast. So I really try and make the most of each day. And I think the only positive will. There's other positives, I guess, but when you have been through a suicide attempt, I think if you get through it and you and you get better, then you appreciate life and the little things in life so much more. I have a few questions, and there are things you've probably heard because you've been listening to a bunch of the shows. So, is there any myth around whether it's suicidal ideation, the attempt, or the recovery? that yeah. you want to sort of dispel and say, no, nah, it's not like that, at least in your experience? I don't know if it comes in under a myth, but I just I wish people wouldn't define people by that one moment or that one attempt or if it's multiple attempts or whatever. People that go through that, it's just an illness. You know, my friend Sean, the podcaster, gets a common cold one day. I don't then define him by, oh, he's that guy that's always sick. And again, I live in a small town, so it's probably amplified a little bit, but... It was really hard post my attempt and post my breakdown. Yeah, you could be having a really good day. Someone say, oh, he's that Simon bloke that he's got mental illness or he's this or he's that, and it just pops your balloon and you're back to square one. Because a lot of people with mental illness really worry about what other people are thinking, like on an unhealthy level. You know, when people judge you like that, I, I just want people to judge me for how I treat them. That's how I judge people. You know, if people are nice to me, that's what I think about them. And I wish more people were like that. Me too. I often ask a guests if they have something to say to people who might be in someone's life who's struggling, Yeah. Uh, which I'll ask you, but it might be easier if I ask, because you had said right when we first started talking, there was a handful of people in your life you can never quite repay what they did. So yeah. it's kind of the same question in that, how did they help? So the best people, I think, compassionate but they keep you accountable at the same time in australia there's a pretty big drinking culture especially with young males and i see it all the time you know a mate knows someone's upset so the first thing they do is go and buy them a slab of beer and get pissed with them and that's not helping that's maybe delaying the problem so i think be empathetic but keep that person accountable but the biggest thing is people would often say to me i don't know what to say and they don't have to know what to say. The best people are the ones that are just themselves. Maybe turn up the caring a little bit. But if you're in someone's life, you're in there for a reason. Like if they're your friend because you play sport with them, you don't have to sit down and have a big chat with 
when we're about emotions. Maybe just offer to go and if it's basketball, go and shoot a few hoops with them or if it's whatever. Um, spend a bit more time with them. You don't have to know what to say, but just be you. But just turn their caring up a little bit and just listen. The biggest thing, if someone's talking about suicide or someone's in a bad place, don't sell them time. It's the worst thing. Yeah, what do you mean? Like they'd say to you, just hang in there and time will heal all wounds. Or if you can just stick it out for another week and then to a degree it's true, but when you're in a bad place, you don't want that time. It's like trying to sell a big juicy steak to a vegetarian at that stage. Like you're not you're not going to have any success. You're you know? selling them something they don't want. Yeah. So like, just go back to being yourself and being a caring friend. And, and again, coming from a small town, the biggest thing is if someone comes to you that needs help and you don't know what to say and you feel you need help, then get it from an outside source. Don't get it from a friend because it'll just spread. The gossip takes off like wildfire and, and you can't rein it in. So, you know, if a friend comes to you and says, I'm thinking of committing suicide, that's a really hard thing to hear. And you may not know what to say. And if you need help, do some research on the internet, call a hotline, yeah. do whatever. Don't ask Joe Blow down the street, oh, so-and-so is not feeling well, what do I do? Because it just... It never ends well. Yeah. And you were saying uh, in your part of Australia, the the virus, the lockdown, all this craziness from March has not been, at least of late, as bad as it was. It's manageable or no? Yeah. So, like, we're in regional Australia, so there's less people, so less virus, essentially. Where my wife and I are really fortunate. We both kept our jobs and, and that sort of thing. So, but, like, my brother and his wife live in Melbourne and, it's been much harder for them. The, the lockdown's been more, a lot more restrictions and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been an inconvenience, but compared to what some other people are going through, I've got nothing to complain about. So, you know, put your mask on and get on with it. That sounds so Australian, what you just said. <laughs> I love it. Before I, my final question is just going to sort of be an open-ended, hey, what else would you like to say? But before that, which do you prefer of these three? And it may be none. Yeah. rugby football slash soccer or aussie rules football and if it's aussie rules football please explain that to me that's that's yeah. my question it's a no-brainer and my wife i'm obsessed with aussie rules as you call it okay um, but now there's the part b to that simon can um, you explain it to me in less than 20 seconds no i'm gonna hope it's just really good if you're trying to get into it yeah, persist because it's the best game on earth. So I've seen it. Um, it's a, it looks sure like a great game. It just looks a little bit like football and rugby combined with something else for me, yeah, for my yeah. American eyes. Yeah, but make sure if you do get into it, make sure you go for Hawthorne. Otherwise, me and you can't be friends. So we're the brown and gold team if you're looking. Unapologetic fandom. Yeah. And I'm how are they doing this year, Hawthorne? Uh, we didn't have our best year. Um, but, um, you should be asking for us to support them in another year then i think um but a few years ago we had a really good patch but our, all our players got old and retired so i don't know what you guys call it, but we won the premiership three years in a row so oh, wow are they based yeah. near you uh nearish yeah, but everything in australia you say it's like it's close and people from other countries like oh my god that's so far away right yeah they're about three hours away got it I will check it out. And if I ever decide to really sit down and learn it, or at least watch a full game or match, yeah. I will try to find Hawthorne and at least do it with them. 
what did I not ask or uh, omit or whatever else that you'd like to add? The biggest thing is, and again, for the people out there that are having a tough time, is just be here tomorrow. And any of your ill feeling or whatever is directed at yourself, it's probably not true. You're probably a really good person and you've just had a shit run and you just need a bit of luck and things to go your way. For me, it was finding Tarzi, my dog, and then, you know, good things happen from there. But I think also I wanted to say to you is like you're probably up to episode 40 or whatever now. So Almost, almost. Getting famous. Make sure you're looking after yourself as well because you're picking up everyone else's baggage and eventually that'll get too heavy. So. Yeah, thank you for that. Because this podcast has been, like I was saying here before, it, it, I feel like um, I can relate to people on here. It's it's really helped me, and and I hope that you're here for another forty um, podcasts. So make sure you look after yourself. I am going to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for that, uh, and for talking with me. Before we go, I hate to say this in any way that suggests it's trite, but genuinely sorry for your loss of your brother. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm glad that you, I guess the word is failed in that attempt. I don't know if the right verbiage is there, but it didn't work. You're still here. And that's yeah. awesome. So I'm, yeah. and I'm, I'm pretty damn sure. I don't know. You said your mom and your, your wife might be listening. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, for them and your kids. I know I, now I'm babbling. I'm just glad that for them, because I'm sure you're a pretty good dad and son and, and husband. Yeah. Friend. I'll do my best. You do your best. It's been really good. Whenever I finish talking with a guest, I always let them know, hey, if you want to add more to our conversation, uh, you can come back and we can continue talking. And no one's ever taken me up on it until now. Simon had a little more to say and I welcomed him back. This is the rest of our talk. Once I started feeling a bit better, I developed a bit of an attitude that I found really helpful. I think for I think the people listening to this are obviously either not feeling great or they're on the road to recovery or they might be someone that's trying to help someone or mm-hmm. and I don't know I just wanted to pass it on to those guys so for me it was I developed this attitude of because I think people get obsessed with when you're in a really low place of feeling better like you've this constant desire to feel better and want to feel better and so for me when I was really low I found like I was always wanting to feel better like I saw other people you know in my life that seemed so happy and I just wanted to be like them and and that really takes a toll on you and I don't know where I picked it up from uh, I developed this attitude of either if you can't move forward hold your ground so mm. for me what that was about was if I woke up and it might be for no reason at all, I was just having a really shitty day. When I used to have a low, it'd feel like you made a concrete, like you can't move, you can't talk, you can't get out of bed. For me, I developed this attitude of, yeah, either hold your ground or, or move forward. And if you weren't feeling well enough on the day to, you know, to be positive and get stuff done, then at least don't go backwards. So hold your ground. For me, alcohol was a big problem drugs at one stage, self-harm. So I would say to myself, okay, today I'm not feeling up to getting everything done that I wanted to get done, but I'm at least not going to do the things that I know are going to make it worse. So that was a hold your ground day. It might be two or three of those days in a row. That made it a lot easier for me to move forward. 
And then I really sort of took the attitude that if I was having a good day, uh, to really sort of make hay while the sun was shining, like do all the things I wanted to do and try and remove things out of my life that caused me to feel low or even suicidal and that sort of stuff. So, And the only other thing I, I said during the interview was I probably beat up on, you know, treatment and that a little bit. Like when I got hospitalised, it really didn't work. Mm-hmm. I had a really good example of it that I wanted to share because I don't want people to listen to this and think, oh, I shouldn't go to therapy because yeah. I probably saw like 10 different therapists and then I found one that we really clicked mm-hmm. and it sped up the healing process you know, by five or 10 times. So I just think it's really important for people to keep trying, keep looking for that that one that you click with and it might come through a hotline, it might come through, you know, going to your GP, um, going to your doctor. But, yeah, for me, once I found that one that really clicks and we don't we don't catch up regularly anymore, like I consider myself in a pretty good place. Mm-hmm. But every now and then, you know, if I feel like I'm going to bottom out, you know, I'll, I'll give him a call and we might catch up for a tune-up session where it's just one or two sessions and I'm good to go. Because I'm, I'm the kind of guy that if I'm like 10 out of 10 happy and then I go to nine and then I go to eight, I skip seven, six, five, and I go straight to one and two. So for me, once I get to eight or nine, you know, I start to put things in place to, to really turn it around. But I talked about my wife a lot during the interview and she did the most amazing thing for me that really helped me. And I thought if your listeners heard, they might be able to, put it in, into practice in their own life. She actually gave me a bracelet mm. for days that I was feeling really either high or low and I couldn't put it into words. When you're feeling that low, it can be really hard to start the conversation and say, hey, look, I'm feeling really bad. But it can have a really bad effect on the people around you. Like they think, you know, what have I done to upset him? Why is he so quiet? And all I had to do was put this bracelet on and she wouldn't ask me about it. She just knew that I wasn't feeling great and I knew that she was there for me if I needed to talk, but she knew that, okay, he's not having a great day. Let's just take it easy today. Let's chill out. And it's so helpful. Like I Brilliant. Brilliant. I love that. I put it on and, you know, it it just makes a world of difference. And, again, honestly, I haven't worn it for a year or so. but It's a great idea. Something nonverbal. Yeah. Very clear. Not yeah. personal, just shitty day. Yeah. Love you, but you know that type thing. I, but I also have to commend you. I really like to hold your ground, not just for the idea of it, but even having words for it help. Yeah. I think just okay, yeah. that ain't happening. But I don't have to go back twenty three steps and do yeah. all the things that make it. Yeah, man, that's great. And once I got that in my head, it, it felt like it made life a lot easier. During the podcast, I talked about um, my mum and the first two marriages and how horrible they were and then mm-hmm. she met the new and still current husband i've heard a lot of your podcasts and they have people in their lives that maybe say comments that really upset them you know mm-hmm. like comments like, oh, snap out of it or sure and i just wanted to tell the world about wayne his name is he's a really amazing fellow but at the start of our relationship we clashed a lot mainly because i think he had a reflex for me like the first two were so horrible to me and mum and my brothers that I was probably 
like he didn't have much of a hope at the start of the relationship because I was already sort of had my walls up and, and that sort of thing. So he came on the same when I was about 13, 14, and I'm 33 now, so we've known each other for a long time. But I've watched him really probably change his attitude towards mental health, and I've heard a lot of your people on your podcast say, you know, mum said just go take your meds or I think there was another lady that got told just to snap out of it or, you know, you bring the family down and all that sort of thing. And, and he never said anything too bad. Like he did say a few comments that to him were probably just a passing comment, but they really brought me undone. But mm. now to watch him develop and our relationship develop. So I guess for me is my message to your listeners would be take it from someone that's lost family um, and has been ready to leave the earth. Having your family is the best thing and they can change and they're probably just trying to help. It's really hard to deal with someone that's going through mental health issues and is suicidal and, and it's probably the first time they've dealt with it. So if you can, try and cut them a bit of slack and if they do make a comment, try not to let that lodge in your mind for too long and, and, and move on with it because he and I like have the best relationship now and I have heard that a lot in your podcast like that one comment that sticks in someone's head and it can be hard to let that stuff go and you might get hung up on it for a long time but yeah. you can overcome it that coming out the other side is it's the best thank you again I hope you stay well and uh, let us connect soon man yeah cool thanks man alright Sam and take care man and thanks again see ya, bye bye As always, thanks so much for listening and special thanks to Simon down under in Australia. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. You can reach out hello at suicidenoted.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We release new episodes every Monday morning. I hope you continue listening. Stay strong. Do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.